I've spent my whole adult life really since being sort of steeped in Buddhist practice. I went to India when I was 19 and just took a one-way ticket and took no luggage at all. Not in, I mean, nothing. I got on the plane with a, just in a t-shirt and trousers, not even a toothbrush. My poor parents dropped me at the airport with my one-way ticket. My mother was upset wondering when I would be back and I was just couldn't wait to get on the plane and from the first you know I went to India with some idea already of just of um, with some idea that somehow India was this kind of magical land of uh, inner mysteries which turned out to be true in some ways and I went up to the mountains, to Dharamsala, where the uh, Tibetans were living in exile after the Chinese invasion, and looked for teachers, teachings, opportunities to meditate and to have some guidance in meditation. And within the first 15 or 20 minutes of the first teachings I ever heard oh, it was like uh, it was like some great relief and some great recognition and just the fact that wow there's you know, this inner restlessness that I've known for some time this kind of longing to understand what does it mean to be human and w- to be conscious and how the he- I, I'm kind of interested in my mind but I have no idea how to really engage with my mind and then suddenly wow here's this whole body of teachings and practices these generations of refinement on how to train your mind how to explore consciousness how to recognize one's own kind of patterning and projections and inner complexities and how to actually put them down. How to work with the friction that we make and how to find uh, some real freeness of being. And really since that moment, everything else became rather secondary to me. I forget now why I started off like that. <laughs> I think I was that was supposed to lead into some point, but then I just got you know, wrapped up in my own nostalgia a bit. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> And I've always been interested, I think I'm remembering the point now that I wanted to get to, I've always been interested in what's, it, what's most essential about these practices and teachings. Because it's not really the Buddhism, right? It's kind of a bit of a cliche, but of course the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, right? The, the trappings, the ism stuff grows up afterwards just like you know Christ wasn't a Christian etc 
It's the codifying and the, you know, it's the love of the original teachings and then the wish to be, to honour those original teachings and honour that original teacher and honour the kind of the tradition that grows up around it, that things get codified and inevitably ossified to some degree. And then you get Buddhism, right? or the varieties of Buddhism or of any other kind of ism, whether it's a spiritualism or secularism, you know, the ways things get get uh, yeah, ossified. And maybe you've travelled to some of those Buddhist countries, maybe you've been in temples, maybe you love, I have a go, I love those ta- I love to go into temples, I love to bow, I love to light incense and candles, I love to chant. You know. But I don't really, it's like a hobby, that stuff. That's a good Buddhist hobby, you know, chanting, bowing, waving incense around. It's good, you know. And like any other hobby, we get, we get something we enjoy about it. We enjoy the feeling, you know, of kind of you know, devotion and feeling of whatever goes along with that. But the bud part, bud means awake, right? So Buddhism, if you like, really means awakeism, awakening. So. We may or may not like the chanting and the bowing, etc. And if we don't like it, well, you can leave it aside. Or you might want to actually explore it. You know, there is something very beautiful, actually. And some of the retreats I do at the Mulan, not all of them, but some of them, we explore bowing practice and chanting practice. And, you know, actually cultivating a direction or an inclination of the heart towards devotion, towards surrender, towards kind of... Is that sort of giving oneself to the mysteriousness of life. Some of those you know, non-conceptual channels, actually, especially if we're somebody who finds it difficult. We've spoken a bit about non-conceptual awareness. If we find someone who finds it difficult to get out of the conceptual channel like this, we're sitting here talking about non-conceptual awareness in meditation, but if it's all, you know, if we very much on the superhighway of everyday mind, <laughs> you know, then it might be that actually some bowing practice, chanting practice, might be a very helpful way, good way, of switching channels in a way. Or it might be that we discover kind of, as I say, a natural just enjoyment, love of those kinds of uh, expressions. And you know, some of that stuff then becomes part of the trappings or the tradition that grows up around all of this. But what's most essential in Buddhism is practice and teaching of awakening is really wisdom and compassion. Those are what are brought up um, very often as the essence. And then the, the sort of the main driver or the main methodology how do we cultivate wisdom and compassion? Presence. Right, actually you know, being here to see what's happening, to wake up to what's happening. Wisdom. To care for what's happening. Compassion. And that's been very much that sense of the, the essential presence, wisdom, compassion, has been very much the thread of our retreat which you may or may not have noticed, right? But, if we recap a little bit, inhabiting experience, which is the focus at the beginning, presence, embodied presence, 
immediate presence, knowing experience, wisdom, clarity. And then allowing experience, making room for, caring, being tender with, compassionately holding what's arising. So that's in a way, you know, I was saying to Vibka earlier today, oh, it's been interesting the way the retreat's unfolded. Because I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to, I don't know what the thread of the retreat will be when I arrive. And I try usually, unless there's some very specific theme, I usually try to give a theme that's broad enough that I can basically follow my nose when I get there, like freedom and friction. Right, that's pretty broad. You know? So when we turn up, let's see. Let's see what seems to be, you know, what's, what's stoking my interest and plus whatever seems to be in the field and, and then whatever structure suggests itself. So, and yet I'm always feeling for a way to, to try to be um, faithful to the essence of this practice, presence, wisdom, awakening. Inhabiting experience, knowing experience, caring for experience. And at the same time, also, particularly as we come towards the end of the retreat, want to also include, as along with that sort of what I've called in the talks, freely abiding, inhabiting experience, freely knowing, knowing experience, freely allowing caring for experience, to speak a little bit this evening about freely engaging. Freely engaging. The way that the, we could say that the rubber of our practice hits the road of our lives. Mm, you know, this has been a meditation retreat, which you will have noticed. So, a lot of emphasis on meditation. And yet, in retreat practice, there can definitely be a sense, usefully, right, potently, of some kind of withdrawal from the everyday world. In order to just, you know, to really attend in as fine a way as possible, in as undistracted a way as possible, in as potent a way as possible, to presence and wisdom and compassion. But that's, that's retreat practice. We re- do retreat for a week or for a month or for a few years, if you like. Right? But it's, it's time-bound. And sometimes we can imagine that somehow that Dharma practice is about withdrawing from the world. No, Dharma practice, uh, retreat practice might be about withdrawing from some of the pulls and pushes of everyday experience. But Dharma practice is very much about Embracing the world. Dharma practice most fundamentally is about finding a way to be at home in ourselves and in the world. To be at home in the various situations and complexities and relationships that we find ourselves in. Dharma practice is about being wide awake to the friction that we seem to create, both internally and relationally, and seeing how the goodness of our practice 
can um, allow us to have a freer relationship to the world, but also a freer response to the world, a freer engagement with the world. And, you know, the world needs our engagement. If we don't engage, those of us who kind of care deeply, those of us who are interested in awakening and in wisdom and in compassion, those of us who feel like we, uh, we see the importance of making a wise response and a compassionate response, if we don't engage with the world, what happens? We leave the engagement to those who don't have such... Uh, who aren't yet somehow moved by wisdom and compassion, who are more moved by self-interest, greed, fearfulness, competitiveness, dominance, violence, etc. In a couple of months I'm leading a retreat in France for activists and uh, and also a conference in London in December. And it's it's like contemplatives and activists have so much to contribute to each other because we're the two kinds of people that have a genuine vision of transformation and a genuine willingness to engage ourselves for the sake of that transformation. But the the realm of the contemplatives tends to be inner transformation and the realm of activists tends to be outer transformation. And you know, both are really important. Right. Uh, our understanding of human life evolves because of the work that contemplatives do. And the ways we live in the world together evolves because of the work activists do. And we've got a lot we can learn from each other. But uh, sometimes there's a sort of certain looking askance at each other. The contemplatives tend to think that the activists are, you know, need to get their own house in order first. You might see how some, you know, some activism can be born out of uh, undigested anger and the projection of inner issues onto outer situations. Right? And that's true. But if you wait, if we all waited until we, everything was perfectly lined up and sorted out here before we ever did anything in the world, we'd be waiting a long time. So I think uh, contemplatives have a lot to learn from activists' willingness to put themselves on the line. And maybe you know, and I certainly know people involved, you know, really, very directly in doing really important work, important social work, ecological work, humanitarian work, aid work, protector work, defender work. And then meanwhile, the activists tend to look at the contemplatives and think, well, they're just, you know, navel-gazing, right? sitting on their ass to get up and they care for the world, never mind wishing all beings well, wishing all beings <laughs> well, to get off your ass and do something to help all beings. And they're also right. right. They're right. 
So contemplatives can, if we're not careful, can be kind of complacent, self-satisfied in some way. We come to this kind of practice because of some restlessness and suffering, and then we learn to kind of self-soothe in some ways. We learn to kind of, oh, give some space and give some peace and give some care to our agitation and confusion and suffering. And then it's like, oh, that's much more comfortable. And when there's the danger of becoming comfortable, complacent in one's, in the relief of one's inner ease. And yet also, of course, while those of the contemplatives might be right about the need, uh, while the activists might be right about the contemplatives need to get up and do something, it's also, you know, the outer work we might do is a direct expression. How we are in the world, how we speak and how we act and what we create and what we give attention to and what we value is a direct expression of what's going on inwardly. The way you do anything, a friend of mine says, is the way you do everything. And so, we understandably want to really to kind of look at and care for and investigate our patterning and our defenses and our fears so that our engagement in the world can be well aligned, that it can be an expression of, wi- of presence and wisdom and compassion. And I, right now is actually an exciting moment. I see more, um, more crossover and more conversation and more collaboration and more mutual understanding in, in so activist circles and in contemplative circles than, uh, than, for, than I have before. And I think that's partly pressure of circumstance, pressure of social circumstance, political circumstance, ecological circumstance, you know. Maybe I'll speak about that a little bit as I go along. But I wanted to, ju- I wanted to talk then uh, just about, yeah. and really rather than talking about, it's more inviting. I want to invite your reflection about engagement. How do we engage in the world? And we could look at that in lots of ways or through lots of different lenses. But if we take one of the kind of classic Buddhist lenses, the way of we can three different areas to look at our engagement, areas of uh, body, speech and mind. The engagement of our thought, engagement of our words and the engagement of our actions. And in some ways, just to look at how we engage our thought. It's a lot of what we've been doing this week, right? Engaging thought, learning about thought, getting familiar with thought, cultivating the capacity to step away from being so beholden to our thought, so fascinated by our thought. And learning to, you know, that freeness of thought, which is really being able to employ thinking usefully, rather than being defined by thinking. Most of our thinking is self-referential. It's just a way of defining and redefining and reinforcing ourselves. Most thoughts are thoughts of self-identity and self-image. And most thoughts begin with the word, I. I wonder if I think that I'd really like. 
I want to. I, whatever, whatever. All that ahankara we spoke about the other day, or the the eye making activity. It's an interesting contemplation sometimes to see who would I be without if I didn't rely on the eye thought or the eye image. What would I do? Who, what, who, or what would I take myself to be without that self-referential loop running? In a way, meditation is very much an activity of of coming underneath our our eye thoughts and our self-images, and just that kind of you know, sensing into bodily life. When we say body, you just say the word body. See where you where does your mind go? What are the associations? Body. Body. My body. My when is I don't mean my body, right? You just keep it over there with yourself. <laughs> my body here. My body. My body, right? Image. Uh, maybe a photographic style image. What do you think of as my body? And then whatever associations you have. Lovable or unlovable. Whatever ambivalence you might have about various aspects of your bodily life, whether there are ambivalence about one's health situation or one's ageing process or one's perceived or inwardly decided sense of attractiveness or non-attractiveness. Whatever uh, appreciation or rejection and maybe for one's body, whatever degree of uh, of being at ease with one's uh, with the way one uses one's body, any of those things might be in the whole sphere of just how we conceive of, and it's that becomes so common for us that it's just running like a background program that we don't even notice. Who would I take myself to be? What would I use for my reference? What would inform my experience of being here, of being this one that's feeling and thinking and speaking and acting? If I wasn't dependent on the I thought, on the self-image. Meditation gives us a way of... uh, Sensing into that possibility, just gently uh, coming underneath those thoughts and images, ideas about ourselves. Just inhabiting a field of bodily life that isn't an image or an idea, but is this just kind of lively, flickering, vibrant uh, stream of experience. So part of how we engage and part of what we've been doing these days of a kind of skillful engagement with thought is stepping out from. And trying to remind ourselves and me trying to remind you that while there's that stepping out from thought, there's not any kind of idea that thought is some wrong or bad thing. That thought is something somehow to be gotten rid of. Like we said in a group, if you'd really got rid of thought, you'd be in much more of a mess than you are with thought. Right? 
hello, you know. You're never going to, you wouldn't even, you're not going to manage to get out of the hall even, ever. So, so partly the skillful engagement with thought, kind of undercutting the habitual thought, the self-referential, the, the familiar reinforcing of a sense of what I am and what the world is and what this is and what that is. And keep just coming underneath the familiar to find actually a fresher, less conditioned way of meeting experience. And then another aspect of skillfully engaging thought is actually directing our thought in a helpful way. Thought, like we've said, by habit goes to, well, you see for yourself, where does your thought go by habit? Some of us, our habit is we go to sort of low-level moaning is the habit. Just moaning about the way things are, moaning at ourselves, moaning at our poor partners. You know, they're not here, but it doesn't stop us moaning at them. You know, <laughs> Some people, that's the that's the habit of mind. You just go to kind of complaint, criticism, moaning. Other of us, more the habit more goes to you know wanting, hoping, fantasizing, and that kind of leaning forward in whatever way. And some of us, we go. We've spoken about this already a little bit. You know, we go to just just commentary. Commentary, 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 just telling ourselves about what's happening as if we didn't already know. Oh, yeah, now it's the in breath. As the in breath coming, like, oh, it's changing. Now it's the out breath. Oh, here we go. God, I got it already. Right? Like, we don't need to commentate on the breath, but there's, that's where the habit goes. So sometimes actually, rather than just letting mind follow its habit, actually directing the thought away from something that's unhelpful towards something that's helpful. That's one of the beautiful things about metta practice, right? Just actually, and it's very tangible for people, when you consciously make a practice out of directing your thought towards kindness. Oh, may you be well. May you be happy. May da, 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 da. Standing in a queue, lots of British queue standing. Right? How easily, the, by habit, if you're standing in a queue at the whatever, the checkout or the bank or whatever, how easily the mind will default to its habits. Your habit of spacing out, or the habit of moaning, or the habit of looking for a problematic object, right? Unconsciously, we're looking for, so, oh, that one. Oh, why do they have to do it like that? Why can't they go more quickly? Why did they have to buy so many rolls of toilet paper? You know, we kind of, we laugh, we laugh half because it sounds stupid, and half because it sounds shockingly familiar. So just engaging, rather than habitually creating friction, engaging. What would be a useful way of using the mind? Oh, here are all these people just like me trying to do their shopping. Here are all these people just like me with time constraints and financial constraints and family complexities and wishes that things be a certain way, and frustrations that things aren't 
always going that way. Oh, here I am in a field full of suffering Buddhas. May you be well. How might that transform the experience of standing in the supermarket? A while ago I spent uh, four or five days in London taking care of a whole bunch of administrative stuff. And I was, you know, travelling around in London at rush hour, you know, at commuter times, which I'd never done before. Right? And, you know, the, the kind of, can, you know, the vibe in the tube. It's not like that in all underground systems, by the way. Some cities have quite happy vibes in there. <laughs> but the tube often isn't, is, can feel a little oppressive. At least that was the way I was experiencing it, you know. It's kind of winter, car. people are overheating because they need a lot of clothes to be outside. But then they come in the tube and they kind of sweat and we're sort of sharing each other's vapours in, in, in the tube. And I just noticed the, the, the effect, the combination, right, of outer circumstances and inner circumstances. Just all conspiring to, to feel as if I'm living in some kind of grey, oppressive world. And then the tendency is to believe that's true. Oh, the tube's grey and oppressive place. So it's like, oh, how can I use my thought more usefully than that? And what I did for a few days, I started to listen in the mornings on those tube journeys to choral music. You know, Hildegard von Bingen, if you're familiar, or Arvo Pert. And these kind of, ah, you know, it's kind of, wow. This sort of, celestial, spacious music. And then the tube became a completely different place, became a heavenly realm. <laughs> right? And then everything happens effortlessly by magic. The doors slide open. <laughs> and angels glide out of the carriage. And more angels glide into the carriage. Right? You know, kind of, we we are always curating our experience. You can curate it by habit or you can curate it by practice, right? by conscious engagement with what's happening. So just, you know, what about, what about that for a, an, an engagement with the world through just the inner engagement of the engagement with thought, interactivity? actually consciously, again and again and again, until it becomes a habit, right? until it replaces the old habit, the complaining habit, the distracting habit, the greedy habit, whatever. A habit of a certain kind of buoyancy of heart, a habit of well-wishing, a habit of appreciation, a habit of kindness. And then, just the way we engage our speech. It's, you know, just the potency of speech, the potency of what we say and how we say it. Buddhist tradition talk about the different gatekeepers of wise speech. Is it true? Is it useful? Sometimes it may be true, but that doesn't mean that it's useful. I would say generally usefulness trumps truth. 
You know, just because something's true doesn't mean you have to say it. It might be true, but it might be hurtful. It might be true, but it might be confusing. It might be true, but the person might not be ready to hear it. It might be true, but it's more about you getting it out of your system than it is about uh, being attuned to the situation. Is it true? Important to consider. Also, is it useful? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it timely? Is it an appropriate time to bring this up now? So just just with those, right? Have we actually engage our speech? And of course, one can do that in a mechanical kind of way, trying to hold on, hold on, before I say anything. Is it? Uh, is it right? No. And it may be that it feels a bit mechanical. It may be that one one you know finds that communication leads kind of more frequently than than I'd like towards misunderstanding or towards conflict or towards unease or towards confusion in some ways. And so it may be that one engages a little bit mechanically with some of those things. Right? And so and it may equally be that one engages sometimes after the fact. Right? What well, something was all weird there. And I'm left with some uncomfortable feeling about how I spoke. Well what was going on? Is it true? Is it useful? So that kind of a retrospective reflection, right? not as a way to judge oneself. Right? It's not about, uh, um, you know, uh, fomenting some kind of guilt, but actually as a way to engage, to learn about, to become more skillful with speech. And so it might start off a little mechanical, but increasingly we find we have a feeling for that which is true and useful and kind and necessary and timely. A feeling of actually that taste of freeness. A feeling that it the the feeling that it feels well aligned, it feels clear, it feels wise and compassionate to say that which is worth saying in a way that's worth saying it to someone who needs to hear it at a moment that's appropriate. And so that same engagement uh, can, can start to not feel so mechanical. I can actually can just feel like another way to tune into what's happening, another way to be, to, another way to practice the delight, the goodness of being attuned. We also then might feel the the wider sense of a freely engaged speech, which is just that it can have a certain spontaneity to it. Now we've spoken about with breathing. Just let we don't have to do it. Just let the body sit. Let body breathe. Same with the walking. It doesn't work when you try to do the walking. Just body knows how to walk. Let walking happen. And it might seem like a bit more of a stretch, but it's equally true for speaking. You know how to speak. You don't need to figure it out. You don't need to become really the author of your words. Much more reliable to to be attuned to experience. Present, curious, and to let the words come by themselves 
out of the attunement to what's happening. And we have the idea, well, I, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm saying it. And then beforehand, like if you're going to speak in the hall, you say, okay, what shall, I, what shall I say and how shall I say it? Right? And you may give a little attention to that. You might give an embarrassingly large amount of intention to that, right? if you're honest. What shall I say? But then whatever you think you're going to say, or however you plan it, in the moment of saying, well, the script goes out the window, doesn't it? In the moment of speaking, you can't possibly... Hold on, hold on. What was in the script? Um... No, you just, you speak. But do you have, we easily fabricate the illusion that what I'm saying is based on the planning that I did. Right? So next time we plan it again, etc. In fact, we plan even harder next time because it went a bit wrong last time. I didn't stick to the script. Right? What if you didn't rely on the script? What if you relied on attunement, presence? then we might find actually we can trust ourselves to speak the truth. We can trust ourselves to speak usefully. Because we're not lost in oh, what I'm saying and how I'm saying it and what they're going to think of me. We're tuned to the truthfulness or usefulness, the timeliness, the receptivity of the other person. And we might find in that way that, oh, we're actually the beneficiaries, the listeners to our own words as well. We get to start to hear that which is true coming out of our mouths. We get to hear that which is useful, that which is caring, that which is attuned, that which is fine, that which expresses understanding in a way that may not even have been clear to us completely until we heard it articulated right here. You know, you may have had that experience like in, uh, in groups. And sometimes people will start speaking. Oh, there's something I want to say about my experience. I don't know quite how I'm going to speak about it or what I'm going to say or how to give it words. And yet, when I just follow the actual thread of my experience, oh, I find it got articulated. Not only did I articulate what I was feeling, but I ma- managed to articulate my understanding. Very important. And the practice of that engagement of speech, to trust your experience, to speak from your experience, to stay home in yourself, presence, to be familiar enough with what's happening and wisdom, to care for you know, whatever's in the field and, and let the words come. When, I, when Christopher first invited me to teach, that was the one instruction he gave me, really. He said, just have the wisdom to say yes or no or I don't know in accordance with your actual experience. It was very sort of succinct and simple in some ways, but I found it very helpful. Right? Imagine if I have the, some idea that I'm supposed to know everything about the Dharma. Or I'm supposed to faithfully represent two and a half thousand years worth of teachings and understanding and meditation. Oh dear. Right? I could uh, do nothing but fail horribly at that. But maybe I don't need to do any of that. 
maybe I can trust my love of this practice and this tradition and trust the goodness of the way I've sat in this stuff for years and explored this stuff and trust that if I stay true to that, there's a way to articulate it in a way that feels true and useful. Maybe that's equally true for everyone here. Whether one's speaking about one's inner life and dharma practice, etc. Whether one's speaking about what one sees happening in a particular situation. Whether one's speaking about something which is difficult with somebody who one's not sure how well established the trust is. Or whether one's speaking with someone where there's clearly some conflict, mistrust, animosity even. Maybe especially where there's some mistrust or animosity. To trust that we might be able to find actually an attunement that shows us what's true and useful, timely, necessary, kind. And we might find a, a free engagement with that. We might find the freedom of our own voice. And the freedom to speak. And then the engagement with our action. That's when we can circle back around a little bit to the the activist world. And uh, activist world really meaning... being a kind of symbol for the uh, kind of action in the world, action in support of what we most care about. And I don't want to s- suppose what that is for you, but what do you most care about? What do you most care about? Suzuki Roshi, wonderful Japanese teacher, famously once said, the most important thing is to know the most important thing. It's kind of strange in a way that we might ask ourselves that question, what do I most care about? And not know the answer. And that's okay that we don't know the answer, but for goodness sake, keep asking the question. Because if we don't, then the vacuum of what we most care about will just be filled by just the, the habits of this is and that's. The things that don't really have a deep priority for us in life, but will crowd out the deep priorities just because life is like that. Just because we get busy with the roles and responsibilities and details and dramas of everyday stuff. Sometimes it's like that for meditation practice, right? You come to the end of the retreat, meditation's at the top of the priority list. See, that's what I care about. I'm going to meditate every day. Maybe you've spent some time sitting here. Instead of actually sitting here, you're thinking about how you're going to be sitting in your bedroom next week. Right? And then, oh, you know, the, the stuff of life crowds in and we lose contact with the sense of, even though in theory that was at the top of the priority list, if we don't keep it clear what we most care about, and I'm not suggesting that it should be or is meditation, but whatever it is, if it's not clear to us what we most care about, then all the other stuff will just fill that in. And then we have a loss of meaning or clarity 
or purpose. And then we inevitably start to feel doubtful, despondent, depressed. What do, we mo- what do you most care about? And then, how is one's engagement, one's action, aligned with what you most care about? How is the way you earn your money aligned with what you most care about? How is the way you spend your money aligned with what you most care about? How is the way you use the resources of your time and your attention and your words, resources of your care and your listening and your responsiveness, how is all that aligned with what we most care about? I spoke at the beginning about the kind of the sort of compressive nature of these times, the social uh, pressure of a kind of you know incre- what increasingly looks like a, a fractured and rather dysfunctional society. Britain is ungovernable. Was a headline in one of the national newspapers a couple of days ago, and it's gotten worse since you've been on retreat. <laughs> <laughs> constitutional crisis you know just the dramas of this whole Brexit shit show (laughs) and you know we don't have to blame it all on Brexit you look in look plenty of other places around the world I just came back from two weeks in the US (laughs) you know so you look at the kind of the compressive or fractured or polarized nature of the social discourse, the polarized, uh, kind of dehumanized nature of the political discourse, and then the kind of the, 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 the pressure of not so much the ecological discourse, actually the ecological discourse isn't very strong, but the ecological reality is very, very compressing. And you doubtless at least aware of the IPCC 12-year report, even though the consolidation of scientific opinion is really that that, support, that report is, is overly conservative. And if we interest ourselves in, in the kind of social compression, political compression, ecological compression, and we consider you know, the, what are the chances of the... the the world we've grown used to that operates in a more or less stable way, right? at least in, in the worlds that I don't know what kind of backgrounds you have. I don't know where in the world you've, you've lived or have come from. Right? Maybe you have a background that, that shows you that uh, the, the world and society is anything but stable. But most of you, if you're living in uh, Northern Europe at least, We've known an unprecedented period of social stability in many ways. Now, there's been no warfare for 60 or 70 years on the land we live on. We may be implicated in wars in far-off places, right? But even that, no other generation has known that kind of stability. But social pressure, political pressure, ecological pressure, what are the, pr- what are the chances of that which we may have come to take for granted going along in the same way even towards the end of our own natural life cycle let alone the life cycle of our children if we interest ourselves in these things we might be increasingly doubtful 
about that kind of uh, that kind of st- these stable conditions going on, or if we interest ourselves a lot, we might be increasingly um, sober in the likelihood of that being you know severely disrupted, resource scarcity climate uh, instability, social breakdown, rising sea levels, massive population disbursement, crop failure. How do we engage in a world that goes on and a mind that goes on that our mind makes up stability where there isn't any? We make up a stable, but we say, oh, my body, as if it's a thing. And then when we actually tune in, we find, oh, it's all kinds of fleeting, fluid, moving processes. And this this thing which we call self, which we easily assume continuity and stability over, is very uncertain, the future of this body. Very uncertain. Like the Zen reflection says, we were talking about this in the group this morning, death is most certain. The time of death is most uncertain. What should I do? <laughs> right. well, maybe we apply that to the world. Death is most certain. Right. The collapse of that which we take for granted, whether it's corporations, or governments, or our whole kind of societal fabric. Just like every other society, we, we sort of look within our own bubble, but look at every other culture. Look at ancient Rome, look at the Babylonian society, look at the Greeks, look at the Egyptians, look anywhere you like. Where are they? Gone. Right. And did they, did they fade away very, very gracefully and peacefully? No! Societal collapse. That's what happens. Things collapse. Right? This body is bound for collapse. This mind is bound for collapse. Gaia House is bound for collapse. Your, your homes are bound for collapse. The way we live is bound for collapse. has to be. Everything, the whole our planet is bound for collapse. We've got a few billion years. planet has a few billion years. Don't get complacent. We haven't got a few billion years. How do we engage? Freely. Awake, wakefully. With the great instability of everything we know. Mm, I have a dear friend, Frank Ostaseski, he's the founder of the um, Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. And he sat with the, somewhere between three or four thousand people as they died. Sat holding their hands, sat talking to them, sat with them in moments of incredible grace and beauty and surrender and letting go and sat with people, you know, dying in the face of you know, great fear and resistance, etc. And he's re- just recently ri- written a very beautiful book uh, about his experience. It's called The Five Invitations. And he says, you know, how people somehow, you know, he's at the the moments prior to death, we don't know how that'll be, but at least some good chance body will be in pain. Mind may or not be clear or stable. Don't work, don't wait, he says. Don't, Don't expect to be able to do the work of a lifetime 
in those moments right before death. So how we engage with the world, the, this floating world that's called in Buddhism, right? this unstable world, this world that we care about, this world which is populated by beings that we love, this world that's populated by beings that we're intrinsically, all seven billion humans of them and countless trillions of others, populated by beings that we're inextricably bound up with, beings that we share life with. How do we engage with that? I don't know, of course. I don't have any answers for that. That's why I said at the beginning, uh, it's not really a teaching, it's an invitation to reflect. Somebody I once asked a Zen teacher, what does enlightened activity look like? And the response was, and the answer was, an appropriate response. Fantastic. It's a hard question to that. One could go in all kinds of directions. What's enlightened activity look like? Well, let me... An appropriate response. What gives rise to an appropriate response? Presence, wisdom, compassion. You don't predict an appropriate response. You don't plan an appropriate response. You don't contrive an appropriate response. But we have extraordinary resources for presence and wisdom and compassion. We have extraordinary capacity to engage with our thought and our speech and our action. We have an extraordinary and maybe urgent capacity to show up in the world that we live in. And as I say, I don't know what that will look like. And please don't try right now to imagine yourself what that might look like. But my suggestion would be, my prayer would be, my invitation would be, engage with thought and speech and world. Engage with presence and wisdom and compassion. Because the appropriate response that we make, that you and me and all of us make, are what shapes the world that we live in in its extraordinary, limitless beauty and in its fleeting fragility and in the ways that we, uh, that we meet each other. And that c- capacity to you know, engage freely, respond appropriately find depths of presence and wisdom and compassion within us. That's the promise and the real possibility of this practice. And this is the world crying out for those qualities. the last word to the rooks.